Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 27, verse 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I like that hymn we just sang, the the focus on beauty. Didn't mean to corrupt any of that today. Um, Wasn't last week nice? (laughs) Celebrating the resurrection with all that lovely music and the uh, uplifting scripture. Be nice if there was an appropriate segue to today's passage, but there really isn't. So here we go, back to the Sermon on the Mount. And without any further ado, or even a clean transition, let's talk about lust. Just what the doctor ordered after all that encouragement. Lust is uh, one of those things that's impossible to discuss without making everybody uncomfortable. So I guess that's kind of my job today. I have to take the uncomfortable topic of sex and make it very personal, and it's my job to convict you all while also keeping this PG-13 or cleaner from the pulpit, so I'll do my best. I think we need to start by defining our terms. Uh, The heading for this section in your pew Bibles and these ESVs says lust. I would define lust as the opposite of love. It's a corruption, really, of love. It's the opposite of everything Paul uh, lists in 1 Corinthians 13. For example, if if love is patient and kind and doesn't envy or boast and isn't self-seeking, lust would be, by contrast, impatient and unkind and envious and boastful and self-seeking, etc. But perhaps best in a nutshell, lust is basically desire without commitment. Lust in Christian circles is essentially a dirty word, and this passage is a big reason of why. And it doesn't include all desire when we use the word lust in English. Uh, Jesus is clearly not opposed to love and godly sex. Everything that he condemns in this passage is perfectly fine and commendable in marriage, but it gets really screwy outside of that context. So we kind of know what lust means, but Jesus starts this lesson by quoting from the Seventh Commandment. He says, You've heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. Now, when he says you've heard that it was said, he's not talking about a rumor on the street or, you know, advice your mother gave you. He's referring directly to the scripture. God commanded his people way back on Sinai not to commit adultery. Now, what is adultery? I don't ask this to be provocative, but because I honestly think some people don't know, and some of you are young enough that you've heard this word but remain blissfully ignorant of what it actually means, and that's fair enough. You figure, I'm not an adult, so adultery doesn't sound like it applies to me. sounds like an adult problem. (laughs) Unfortunately, life isn't that simple, and most of you will be adults before long, and also, this is God's word, and we have an obligation to understand what he's saying. And I don't want to sugarcoat this. There's not really any way to do so. Adultery means violating your marriage vows. It's when a married person has sexual relations with someone other than their spouse. 
God doesn't look too kindly on sex outside of marriage. And that's why it made the ultimate top ten in the commandments, right? He cares what you do with your body, and the commandment is essentially you you can't use your body to cheat on your spouse. The Hebrew word for adultery is na'af. But the English word adultery actually comes from Latin and from Old French, and it carries the sense of corruption, uh, mixing things that shouldn't be mixed, defiling something. Now, Sometimes we'll use that in that kind of context. We'll say that we prefer something to be unadulterated, right? Meaning undefiled with anything, without anything else mixed in. We, we use this when we speak about food. Uh, some of us are food purists, right? A purist doesn't want his foods mixed up. I like my pizza, for instance, unadulterated by pineapple, right? Pineapple would constitute an adulterous misuse of the pizza. Well... God is a purist, and what he means in the Ten Commandments, and what Jesus is referring to here, obviously, is sexual defiling. He's concerned with the purity of the marriage bed. And really, it it applies to all sex outside of marriage, because all of that defiles his design and what his intent was. So, as Jesus is preaching, we already know that on the date of this sermon, thousands of years and more already, God has been very down on adultery. He doesn't like it. How much does he dislike it? Well, the penalty was death by stoning for violators, so there's that. So adultery is bad, and and no one in this crowd would argue otherwise. Jesus' audience would not hear verse 27 and find that upsetting or surprising, right? And you're here in church, so you don't, you know, I assume you don't find it surprising either. Of course your pastor is going to say adultery is bad. You expect as much. And and the funny thing is, even secular people find adultery objectionable on some level. Uh, Back in 2014, a poll was done of Americans and found that only 6% of Americans approve of adultery. I don't know who these people are. I can only assume that they haven't been victims themselves yet or they're actively engaged. Um, On the whole, what's kind of funny about it is that Americans are more tolerant of almost everything, including polygamy. Like, the numbers for polygamy are three times that high. And we all know that adultery is more common than we like to think, but people at least acknowledge that adultery is a scandal when it does happen. It happens in TV and in movies all the time, but that's because it's one of those things that still at least slightly sears the conscience. We like watching scandals, as long as they're happening to someone else. And You know, even in Hollywood, the adulterous affair doesn't usually end well. Georgia always says the moral of every one of these stories is don't cheat on your wife. So for all of our licentiousness, most Americans still feel like adultery is morally wrong. And the Jews of Jesus' time would certainly share that opinion. So we have no problem with verse 27. That's fine. Jesus is just confirming what we already know. At least in theory, we're okay with that. But the problem is is that Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Because Jesus has no filter and no concern for making a clean and obvious transition or segue. So he goes ahead and says something ridiculously radical and audacious. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, crap, what do we do with that? This statement is even more awkward than me having to preach on it. Uh, In fact, I would say that Jesus almost comes across as being rude here. 
because he's invading the mind. The one place we consider completely sacred and private. I mean, sure, I may have my fleeting thoughts and flights of fancy, but if I don't act on those you know, impulses, whose business is it really, right? We think of lust as a private sin, if we think of it as a sin at all. And the culture around us celebrates lust. And they've done it for a long time. It's nothing recent. We don't have to go to anything extreme. We've written songs about this for many decades. And by comparison to some tunes, they often sound practically wholesome. Uh, In 1960, the Occasions sang a tune called, I'm a Girl Watcher. I'm a Girl Watcher. I'm a Girl Watcher. Watching girls go by. My oh my. Even before that, in 1956, there was a hit Broadway show called The Most Happy Fella, and there's a tune in there called Standing on the Corner, which is more popular, I think, than the show itself. Standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by. Standing on the corner, giving all the girls the eye. Brother, if you've got a rich imagination, give it a whirl, give it a try. Now, to our modern American ears, this is innocent enough to let Dean Martin sing it on our family-friendly playlist on Spotify. There's no swearing, right? It's not terribly explicit. And the fact is, we like to look, as long as we don't go beyond that. And frankly, that seems pretty harmless on its face, as far as we're concerned. So when Jesus says this, it feels like he's just picking on us. So how do we respond to it? In our minds, I think we have a few defense mechanisms against this, don't we? Uh, One is that we like to draw a very clear distinction in our minds between lustful intent and simply admiring, right? I was looking, but I wasn't lusting. And I think there is a distinction between these things. After all, Jesus doesn't say, you know, don't look. He says, don't look with intent to do this thing, right? And lust is a loaded term in English. Uh, It sounds over the top and sinful, but there's a problem with our splitting hairs that way. I wanted to do this word justice, so I did a quick, you know, lookup of this thing in the Greek to understand what Jesus was getting at. And the Greek word that gets translated as lustful intent here is epithumeo. It's a very broad word. Uh, it basically means to just focus on or to desire intently. But the word is not nearly as loaded as lust is in American church-going years. Uh, It honestly sounds pretty innocent in a lot of other contexts. And in fact, it's actually the same word Jesus uses when he's talking to his disciples at the Last Supper and says, I've long been desiring to eat this meal with you. Same word. So in and of itself, the word doesn't necessarily imply a sinful desire, just a strong one. Uh, In English, I think we've elevated lust to sort of its own category of desire, and we have a way of separating wanting from lusting. But the literal Greek text says desire, not something inherently dirty. So Jesus doesn't let us get away with splitting hairs here. But the context implies that the desire in this case is inherently sinful. If you looked and wanted this thing, something that wasn't yours, then adultery essentially already happened. It happened in the heart, and only God could see it, but you're still guilty. God has given humanity the gift of imagination it's one of the things that sets us apart from the animals but like all the good gifts it can be abused lust again is desire without commitment 
Jesus is basically making the same argument that he made previously when it came to murder. He is saying that adultery, like murder, is on a spectrum. It doesn't begin with the sex. It begins with looking, and it develops into desire, and then the imagination takes over, and it develops into a fantasy. And that doesn't mean that eyeing somebody up is just as bad as having sex with them, just as murder is far worse than anger. Adultery is worse than lust. But the essence, the seed of the sin, is already present. So what Jesus is doing here is not overruling the law. He's actually sort of weaving the commandments together. This Greek word for desire can also be translated as covet and is in other places in the New Testament. That's not a mistake. He's basically saying that every sin starts with the desire, with coveting. And the Tenth Commandment says that very explicitly. It says that's how it starts. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. So sin begins in the mind. And that's why Jesus goes after it there. He is going after the source. And we're used to thinking of this particular category of sexual sin as something that is caused externally and it's just in our minds. And, you know, we blame the culture a lot of the time for throwing sexual images in our face and for the revealing clothing and the promiscuity and the lack of any filters anywhere. Uh, But Jesus says the real problem begins in our heads and in our hearts. And that's a scary thing because it leaves us without any defense. Uh, When the church talks about lust, we tend to reduce it to a discussion of pornography, and that's understandable. That's a huge problem in our society, and the vast majority of men and many women at this point use pornography on at least a semi-regular basis. And the church is not untouched by this trend. And it's fair to point out that this is something new to our society and age, illicit Sexual images have never been easier to find or more explicit than they are today. This is not something that they were dealing with in Jesus' day. They didn't have the Internet. We do have unique challenges. But Jesus isn't singling out pornography addicts. He says that anyone who looks with desire, presumably even if you're just walking down the street, is guilty. So pornography is not the only way to violate this command. I would say it's not even the primary way. The essence of this command is to stop coveting. You can be free of a porn addiction and still eye up every girl on the street, or even just one girl. There's another Broadway tune that I actually like a lot by Herman's Hermits. God did a great cover of it called Leaning on the Lamp. And Herman assures us, you know, maybe I look like a tramp. I'm just hanging out here to steal your car, but it's nothing like that. It's completely innocent. See, I'm leaning on the lamppost at the corner of the street in case a certain little lady comes by. Oh me, oh my, I hope that little lady comes by. So, all right, pornography is definitely sinful, but according to Jesus, we can't even look at girls on the street without sinning. How are we supposed to survive summer vacation on the beach? And if adultery starts with a look, that means every one of us is guilty. So pornography is not only or even the primary issue Jesus is getting at here, and lest you ladies feel like you're off the hook to some extent just because Jesus seems to be picking on the guys here, I just want to observe that men and women tend to covet differently. Men are visual creatures, easily led astray by images and revealing clothing, but we're not the ones who bought up all the copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, just to be clear. Some of you all church ladies are reading Amish romance novels like it's all sweet and holy. But, you know, just because you're not as visual as the men doesn't mean that you're innocent. 
and even standard pornography use is up among women. It's not just firefighter calendars. And there's a story about that I won't get into. And and if sin starts in the imagination, imagination can lead you into a lot of different fantasies. I think it's possible to covet other women's marriages. And even to put it in spiritual sounding language, you can form resentments against your husband for not being a better provider or a better spiritual leader, not praying with you enough, that kind of thing. There are women who idolize their pastors, not me, but better pastors. Point being that many women will feel like this command is directed primarily at men, and I, and I think that there's a temptation to feel like it's their cross to bear, that men are such brutes and sinners on this subject, but I don't think that Jesus intends to let anyone off the hook here. If the root issue is covetous desires, then we have a much broader problem. Women are just as prone to coveting as men are. They just desire differently. So every time any one of us looks at anyone or anything for even the briefest moment and lets that idea replace the idea of our spouse, if it becomes an idol even for a split second, then we are guilty. Every time we look at someone and think in our heart of hearts that God has kept something good from us, then the seed of adultery gets planted. And I think that means we're all in trouble. This saying of Jesus here is meant to make you uncomfortable. He's stepping into territory that we think of as off-limits. Again, we've all looked, so in our hearts, we've all violated the law. Your heart wants things even when you outwardly control yourself. And so Jesus does the rude thing and says the quiet part out loud, that you all have dirty minds, and dirty minds mean dirty hearts. And he won't leave your heart alone because that's where the sickness is. One of my favorite movies is... Henry V, uh, there's a great line in there. It's after England has already invaded France to establish Henry's legal right to the throne there, and the Duke of Exeter goes as a messenger to the French king. And he tells the French king that their demand is that he resigns. And he says to him, if you hide the crown, even in your heart, there will he rake for it, meaning Henry. I love that line because it's such a bold threat. It's like a bad thing to say, like it's cool. But it's actually a great picture of how Jesus views his enemies. And Jesus has several enemies. He has death and Satan, but it's also sin. And sin is the toughest to weed out because it hides out in the heart. The heart is where we nurture our pet sins and where we let them fester and get nasty. And Jesus will not tolerate it. If murder, adultery, and every other sin begins in the heart, there will he rake for it. Private sins are not a thing with God. Jesus is stripping every one of us of cover. You've never had an affair, never dealt with a porn addiction? Great, you're still an adulterous wreck at heart. And in a way, it's almost worse because we can convince ourselves that we're doing okay uh, if we don't have the more outward, obvious sins, right? We end up bringing self-righteousness into the mix, too. I was only looking. You know, for the record, I used to hate when people came into the deli and stood around eating samples and you would offer to help them and they would say, I'm just looking, thanks. It's like, buy something or get out, for goodness sake, you know. If you only came to tempt yourself by looking at the bacon, you're not really doing okay, right? 
C.S. Lewis says it this way, actually. He connects food and, and, and the sex idea. He says, you know, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of sex instinct among us? He wrote this in the 40s, folks. You have to conclude that we have an unhealthy appetite regarding sex. Something is wrong with us, so what should we do? We can't ignore it. We can't make excuses for it. I'm convinced that every one of us from time to time struggles with these fantasies and covetous desires and a wandering eye. Jesus intends to catch every one of us in the net. I think we all look at things expressly for the purpose of desiring them. And honestly, I have a hard time believing or even trusting people who claim otherwise. If you tell me you don't experience temptation at all in this way, I will tend to assume that you're a terrible liar or else have something else that's even worse wrong with you. <laughs> So what should we do about it? Well, Jesus has a colorful suggestion. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, that's simple enough. I shouldn't have to say this out loud, but I'm going to go ahead and just make it clear that I don't think Jesus intends for us to literally maim ourselves. Uh, none of the apostles proceeded to blind themselves, for instance. You know, that's not Jesus' point, but he certainly wants you to see the gravity of the situation, that your private thoughts and fantasies and desires are known to God, and if it was as simple as cutting off a limb, that would be better than hell. But forget about eyeballs. Most of us aren't willing to cut out anything. It could be a sinful relationship that we don't want to let go of. Or too much one-on-one -on -one time, even in a good relationship. Or a Netflix account. Or a favorite TV show or movie that we're hooked on. Or my general right to privacy and, and those places where no one's allowed to go or even ask me about. We live as a people who, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, you know, we deny our eyes nothing. There are almost certainly things in our lives that we could cut out that would help us. Jesus is just using an extreme illustration to get the point across that avoiding sin might require sacrifice. Who knew? Now, he doesn't give specific guidance. He seems to leave it to our discretion to know what our stumbling blocks are and to remove them, and that can vary from person to person. But we're still left with the question of what we should actually do. Because we can try to avoid all temptation in the world, but even cutting things off won't fix it. Because, let's face it here, even blind people have affairs. Stevie Wonder's on his third marriage and has nine kids with five different women. The eyes aren't the problem, is my point. The heart is. So the first practical application is don't follow your heart. We've talked about that before. Your heart is a terrible guide. But if we don't gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands or cut out our heart, what should we do? We can't help seeing attractive people. We live in the world, right? So what do we do? Well, I thought maybe this is a good time to break out the old standby question of what would Jesus do? 
Jesus had eyes. He had to have seen some attractive women in his day, but he never gouged his own eyes out, so apparently it's possible to see attractive people and not sin. He doesn't say every time you look it's a sin. He says when you look for the purpose of desiring. Now, therefore, I'm not convinced that it's a sin to see and even admire and recognize physical beauty for the simple reason that God created it. God made women to be beautiful. He gave them feminine charm, and he created men with an urge to make them smile and laugh. He's given that to us as a gift and not a curse. And I think the most surefire way to get things twisted is to pretend that it doesn't draw our attention and that women are not attractive. If we claim we don't notice, we're deceiving ourselves. And likewise, it would be foolish to pretend that women take no interest in men. That's exactly how secret sins start to fester. So I think it's possible and maybe even necessary to admire beauty in the opposite sex even when it's not your spouse. Jesus had to do it all the time. Why wouldn't he admire the women that he saw? He designed them. The problem for us is that the time that it takes to go from admiration and appreciation to desire happens almost instantaneously. I think it's so rapid for most of us that it's nearly imperceptible. It's so quick, so subtle, that many of us have trouble distinguishing the difference at all. When does admiration slip into the idolatry of lust? I don't know. And my guess is you don't either. Sin is so deep, the line is invisible to us. We've crossed it by the time we're able to even ask the question. Or maybe we even cross it later when we remember a girl or a guy that we saw. Our sin is that bad of a problem. And it's not just physical urges, it's the emotional idolatry, the resentment of what you have and other kinds of fantasies. And I think that's why we in the church ended up with the extremes of the purity movement. Because we don't know how to do it right, and we end up instead with more and more legalism. We end up like Ned Flanders in The Simpsons calling the pastor to say, Reverend, I think I'm lusting after my own wife. That's stupid. That's where desire belongs, idiot. But lust leads to despair, and despair leads to legalism, and legalism leads to distance from God and from our neighbors in the church. And this is not what love does. And I don't think that's what Jesus would do because it's not what Jesus did. Think about this. Jesus was in ministry for three years. And he knew a lot of women during his ministry. He hung out with single women, married women, young women, old women, prostitutes, you name it. And the thing is that Jesus was a man. We believe that he became one of us in every way except for sin, which means he had all the functioning anatomy that men are typically born with. Jesus did not become a eunuch. Jesus was not an asexual being. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't gender fluid, I guess is the term they use today, right? He had a sexual nature. The beauty of the women in his life could not possibly have escaped his notice, and yet he never sinned. Somehow Jesus figured this out. I don't know how it worked. I only know that the same Jesus who could experience pain and hunger and thirst also had a sexual nature like we do. Jesus is not genderless, non-binary, 
He's not a confused thing. He was a man and knew he was a man, and he was the greatest man who ever lived. And as the greatest, manliest man who ever lived, I think several things are worth noticing about the way Jesus interacts with women, things that are worthy for us men to emulate, because Jesus loved the women in his life, and he did it well. First off, I would observe that Jesus was so comfortable that he did not avoid women. He's not afraid of them, which means he's completely different than I was as a teenager, right? We have no record of him ever sending a woman away for presenting too much temptation. Jesus never indicates that women are a problem. He doesn't order them to stay away so he won't be tempted. And women flocked to him. They followed him to Calvary. They followed him to the grave. And he never indicated that this was a problem. When a prostitute comes and anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, the scandal is that he lets her do it. It is such a warm and intimate scene, and yet he doesn't push her away or make her feel ashamed. If you like, we could say that Jesus does not employ the Billy Graham rule, because he didn't need to. Now, I'm not knocking on the Billy Graham rule. I think it's generally common sense for a man not to be alone with a woman he's not married to. I use that principle in counseling. But that rule is predicated on the weakness of men, not because women are inherently wicked for being women. I need the Graham rule because I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. And he takes responsibility for himself. I think... Too often the purity culture in Christian circles tends to blame women for tripping up the men as if men just can't help themselves. But we have no record of Jesus doing that because he was safe to be with. Second of all, Jesus doesn't condescend to women. He's not so captivated by the beauty of women that he turns a blind eye to their sin. He's not given to pandering just because a girl bats her eyes at him. Now I learned years ago to send Georgia to Home Depot if I needed something difficult to find because pretty girls get much better service. I infer this from personal experience. I know that most men are suckers, but not Jesus. The manliest man in history was a master of speaking hard truth to women. When he finds himself alone with the woman at the well, he doesn't let her monopolize the conversation and he doesn't let her lie. And he doesn't let her evade his questions. He corners her, he confronts her sin, and he saves her from herself. One time when a woman touched him in a crowd and was healed, he didn't let her hide. He made her come forth and tell the whole story and testify to God's goodness. But lastly, Jesus is also gentle with women. He's never threatening or violent or heartless. So when he sees Mary and Martha weeping over Lazarus, he weeps. Not because he doesn't know that Lazarus is going to be raised. He weeps because they weep. On the cross, he makes arrangements for his mother. When he resurrects, he takes the time to come and comfort Mary Magdalene before he even goes to the Father. And when one woman is caught in adultery, he shows forgiveness and mercy. In short, when it comes to women, Jesus is safe, strong, and when appropriate, sweet. In other words, he loved them well. 
Jesus is a man's man, and as a man, he certainly noticed the women around him, but a real man is not lustful. That's how, not how men were intended to be. And Jesus not only invented women, he invented sex, he knew that it was good, but Jesus is not a Gnostic. He doesn't view the physical world as evil, right? This is how he designed it to be. The world is physical, and people have bodies, even female bodies, so of course he noticed But just as we saw with anger, Jesus is not a slave to his sexual nature. His anger was always holy, and even his gaze is holy. He could look at women without having unholy desires because he loved perfectly. We might even say that he was the only man who ever truly saw women. He could see the depth of their beauty, the desperation of their sin, their need for him, and he loved them without the distractions of sin. He was perfectly chivalrous, protective, and tender. No wonder women loved him. So, brothers, I know we can't really be like Jesus. Uh, This is a command we will never master. Jesus was the only man, I think, who could spend this much time around women and not slip up. It's nearly impossible for us to look at women this intently and yet sinlessly. We don't know how to enjoy beauty without it becoming a problem. It's like walking on clean snow. The sooner as we touch it, it's ruined. And I think that's why Jesus makes this command sound almost ridiculous. If you feel hopeless upon reading this, that's kind of the point. But as always, there is good news. The spoiler is still true. The tomb is still empty. Death is conquered. Satan is bound. And Jesus is systematically killing the sin in you, even as we speak. And that same affectionate, pure love that he showed for the women in his life is the same love that he showers on his bride, the church. And that includes us men. He doesn't push us away. He doesn't let us hide, and yet he is incredibly gentle. Jesus never married during his earthly life because he was saving himself for his bride. He only has eyes for her. And beloved, that is a wonderful thing to know because honestly, even us men sometimes just want Jesus to make us feel safe and accepted and protected and forgiven. We all want to be wanted. And Jesus looks at his bride and he wants her. He desires his bride, but he is also committed. So it's love, not lust. And he is cleansing us and making us beautiful again. And the bride will be flawless on her wedding day. The beauty of the world around us will pale in comparison to the church in that day. So my urge to you today is not to obsess over your failures. I don't want you to read this in despair. Satan would love nothing more than to keep you in a cycle of guilt and shame and private sin. But there's a way to break that cycle. You break it by throwing yourself at the feet of the only man who did it right. You let Jesus see you and know that the cross is big enough to cover it all. He cares about the hidden sins in your heart, but he won't leave it that way forever. And our gospel hope is that the lustful and covetous sinners receive grace too. And that's good news. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We come to you 
broken sinners, Lord, each of us with our own sins that are internal to us that only we know about, Lord, and probably goes deeper than we're even able to see. Things we don't speak out loud. Things we're afraid of people finding out. I think every one of us would have felt uncomfortable sitting under your teaching on this day. But Lord, we thank you that you already know the heart. There's nothing that's hidden from your sight. And we thank you that you still love your bride. And that you view it as your task, Lord, to cleanse her and purify her so that we can wear white on the wedding day. We thank you for that promise. Be with us this week, Lord. Correct our waywardness. Guide our steps. Keep us from sin. For your glory, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings.